Galatians 6, 1-5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace that you've shown to us. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. Lord, we pray now that as your word is opened, that you would use your word to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So Lord, may it not return to you empty. Lord, we pray that the preaching of your word would bless your people and glorify your name and exalt Christ and your gospel. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive. May you be glorified in us now and always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again in Galatians, and we are continuing through what is the more practical section of the letter. As is common with Paul's letters, Galatians begins uh, very heavy on doctrine. Uh, Paul has spent several chapters working at refuting the theological arguments of his opponents, the Judaizers. So we've seen Paul build his case for the gospel, and specifically dealing with the question of how do we receive the blessings of Christ's work? Paul has been very clear, uh, in contrast to the Judaizers who would want to bring their lineage into it or point to something like circumcision, Paul has been very clear the answer is by grace alone, through faith alone. The true Christian is the one who has faith in Jesus Christ and is indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, which will bring about a transformation in the life of the believer. So as we've seen, Paul transitioned in chapter 5 to begin drawing some practical applications from his arguments. Uh, the truths of the gospel flow out into practical application, right? So things like how we live as Christians, how we are to view ourselves, and as we'll look at this morning, how we live together in community as a church are all realities that flow out from the gospel. So let's pick up in chapter 6. Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now one thing we need to keep in mind in reading scripture is that the chapter and verse divisions we have were not in the original text. Uh, while they are helpful, and I'm glad they're there, make it much easier to navigate, uh, they can cause us to forget the context at times. And so chapter 5 uh, ended with an exhortation not to fall into envy, conceit, or provocation. But Paul instead now turns and gives a contrast in chapter 6 uh, to commend mutual aid and service, right? So instead of being conceited, 
uh, provoking and envying one another, or looking down on our brothers and sisters. Instead, chapter 6, we should aim to help them, to bear their burdens, to restore them when they fall into sin. So we see accountability, mutual upbuilding, helping and caring. These are the things that are to characterize the church. If anyone is caught in any transgression, now the word caught means to be taken by surprise or, or to take beforehand. And that could be taken in two ways. Uh, commentators are divided on this. It could mean, firstly, that the person is caught in their sin, uh, caught with their hand in the cookie jar, uh, caught red-handed, um, you know, caught in the act. Uh, or secondly, it could mean that it was the transgression which took them by surprise. Right? They, the idea being they were suddenly ensnared and fell into the temptation. Uh, came upon them suddenly, took them by surprise, and they fell into the sin. And I think the second idea is likely what Paul has in mind here. As Albert Barnes notes, uh, Christians do not commit sin deliberately as part of the plan of life, but they may be surprised by sudden temptation or urged, urged on by impetuous or headstrong passion, as David and Peter were. <clears throat> and so in this context, we are speaking of a Christian in good standing within the church who has had some temptation fall upon them that they then fell into. So this is not referring to a lifestyle of high-handed rebellion. In any case, the instruction is, for those who are spiritual, he says to the church, you who are spiritual should seek to restore them in the spirit of gentleness. So those who are spiritual, those who are mature, those who are being led by the Spirit in their own lives. Now, as we've seen over the last couple weeks, as we looked at the fruit of the Spirit, those who are spiritual, who are led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Uh, you who are spiritual are to gently restore those who have fallen into sin. Now, what does that mean? And what does it look like for us practically to restore someone who has fallen into sin? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to know firstly, what is a Christian to do when we sin? Right? What is our response? How do we go about making things right with those we have sinned against? Do we simply ignore our sin, move on, and pretend as though nothing ever happened? Do we sit in silent shame and try to smooth things over by buying gifts for those we may have wronged? You know, ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has had a very difficult time in accepting blame. We have this old family resemblance to our first parents, right? We tend to do what Adam and Eve did. Adam sinned was caught in the transgression, fell into transgression. And when God confronted him, he started pointing fingers. Right? It was this woman that you put here, by the way. Adam blames Eve, Adam blames God. And we can actually understand maybe some of why Adam responded the way he did. God had said that on the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. 
To this point in the story, there was no promise of grace. There was nothing Adam could fall back on, and so for him, the weight of guilt would be unbearable because he knew that it meant the sentence of condemnation. And we all, by nature, tend to feel this same way under guilt. We know that what we have done is wrong, and we know that it brings upon us the wrath of Almighty God. And so we are just like our first parents. We will point fingers, we will find scapegoats, we will blame shift, and we will respond in anger to anybody who reminds us of the truth we've been suppressing. We will do whatever we can to ensure that the blame does not fall on us. But for us as Christians, what we need to understand is that the gospel has changed everything. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not face the sentence of condemnation for our sins because Jesus Christ has taken it on our behalf. We long to be free of guilt, shame, and condemnation. And our flesh tells us that the only way to freedom is to shift the blame to someone else, to make sure it does not fall on us. The gospel tells us that the opposite is true. The path to freedom is repentance and faith. This is how we receive forgiveness. We own up to our sins. We take responsibility for them, and we seek forgiveness from those we have wronged. We take ownership of our actions, confess them to God, and throw ourselves upon His mercy. And we do this in confidence. Because unlike Adam at the moment God confronted him, we have the promise of forgiveness for all who will throw themselves upon the mercy of Christ. And so as counterintuitive as it feels to our flesh, the true path to freedom is not blame-shifting, it is not excuse-making, it is not a public campaign to get the public to approve of our sin, but the path to freedom is repentance. And the person who is still making excuses for their sins is not repentant. So what do we do when we sin? When we are caught in transgression? Repent. Confess your sin to God and rest in His grace and mercy. Confess your sin to others and do what you need to to make things right with them. And so this is how we are to help one another. When we are fall, uh, when a brother or sister falls into sin, we help walk them through this process. As Albert Barnes puts it, here it means not to restore him to the church after he has been excluded. So he says we're not talking about uh, church discipline, but rather to set him right, to bring him back, to recover him from his errors and his faults. The Apostle does not say in what manner this is to be done, 
but it is usually to be done doubtless by affectionate admonition, so confronting of the person in sin, by faithful instruction, showing them the path to follow, and by prayer, close quote. So your goal is to help restore them to fellowship both with God and with others. Sin separates us from God and from other people. And I'm sure we can all relate to a time where we've had a spat with a friend of ours. Uh, one or both of us have sinned and we fall out of fellowship for a time. Your fellowship is restored when you make up again. When you confess, you right the wrongs, you apologize for your sin and ask for forgiveness. And I think that's a good picture of what sin does between us and God. Now God, of course, never sins against us. And so if there is a break of fellowship, it is entirely our fault. But we can think of our sin as our turning our back on God. Right? God and sin are different directions. They are different trajectories. And so repentance, then, is to do a 180, right? to have a change of mind, a change of direction. You were heading in the direction of sin, which means your back is turned to God, and repentance means turning back toward God, turning away from your sin and back to God, and therefore being restored in your fellowship with Him. Now, it's important to keep in mind here, we are not saying that people are losing their salvation every time we sin. Right? It is not a falling out of and back into grace as with uh, the Roman Catholic system. Uh, no true Christian can ever be lost, but we can and do fall out of fellowship by turning our backs on God and walking a path of sin. And so for us to restore the one who has fallen into sin is to help them reconcile, to get back into fellowship with God and others, to walk them through the process of repentance. Paul says this is to be done in a spirit of gentleness. We must keep in mind the goal. Your hope is to see this brother or sister restored. Seeing your brother or sister fall into sin is something that you should that something that should grieve you because you love them. It is only a wicked and miserable heart that would take pleasure in seeing others fall. It is a wicked form of envy. Such a person, driven by bitterness, would revel in the opportunity to gloat in their own righteousness, to point fingers, and to heap <clears throat> condemnation upon their brother. This person takes sinful pleasure in viewing themselves as superior to the person who fell. Such a person has no business confronting others in their sin. You who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Those who are mature in faith, who are being led by the Spirit in their own lives, are to lovingly confront, rebuke, and encourage and exhort their brothers or sisters who have fallen into sin. But this must be done in a spirit of gentleness that truly has the other person's best interest at heart. 
And so if you cannot honestly say that you are truly motivated by love and by your desire to see that brother or sister grow in holiness, then don't even think about confronting them in their sin. Get your heart right first. Then you can seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Now there's an interesting implication here. Uh, notice what this passage requires for the Christian life. Right? This is all about accountability. Scripture assumes and requires that Christians will be accountable to one another and to the local church. Consider the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 18. Jesus says there, <clears throat> If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus outlined the process for us here, and this is uh, the process for church discipline. He says that your attempts to restore your brother are not well received. So your brother says, no, I will not repent of this sin. I will not confess what I've done. I will not seek to make things right. I'm going to continue in this. Then you are to go and to take two or three others with you. Now, most likely the church elders. Those witnesses then have the job of establishing the truthfulness of your charge. Right? Nobody should ever be uh, convicted uh, without a fair trial. Once the facts have been verified, then these witnesses are also to call on the brother to repent. If he remains stubborn, even with the witnesses, they are then to tell it to the church. And the church then shares in the duty to rebuke this man in his sin. And if he refuses to listen even to them, then Jesus says, treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, treat him as an unbeliever. And the main place you would see this is that this person would then be barred from the Lord's table. The church can no longer affirm this person's profession of faith as it is being undermined by their own stubborn refusal to repent of their sin. And so notice what this all requires. All believers are to be accountable to local churches. We must all be in a position where our brothers and sisters could follow this process with us if we were to fall into some sin. We must be accountable to our brothers and sisters in the church. And we must be living closely enough with our church family that they would actually know if we have fallen into some sin. As with everything that God commands, these instructions are for our benefit. Accountability is actually one of the blessings that God intends for his people to have in the church. It is one of the means that God uses to keep his people walking the right path. It is a great great blessing to have people around you who love you enough to rebuke you rather than to watch you be destroyed 
by your spirit. It is a great blessing to have a whole community of believers that are all committed to your sanctification and growth in grace. Who, people who would love you enough to risk offending you for the sake of your holiness. And so this is one of the reasons why we are big on church membership. As members, we are making it clear to one another that we desire to live this way, to obey these commands, to become the kind of church God describes in his word. As members, we are making it clear we desire to hold one another accountable and to be held to account ourselves. We collectively commit to obey the word of God in this manner and to seek to restore one another if someone is to fall into sin. To continue on with our text, Paul follows with a warning. <clears throat> Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now we need to understand that there is danger, potentially, in seeking to restore someone. Though you may start out with pure motives, you may find yourself being sucked into the same temptation. You know, there are tragic stories of pastors who end up committing adultery with women that they were counseling. I can think people can be drawn into lifestyles of drunkenness and debauchery through their efforts of trying to help others out of those situations. And so we must be cautious as we seek to aid others. Do not overestimate your own spiritual maturity and foolishly put yourself in dangerous situations. And that is all the more important if you're dealing with something that has been a challenge for you in the past. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Thinking that we have conquered something can cause us to drop our guard. So don't ever underestimate the power of temptation. Don't leave your flank exposed and become prey to an ambush. But keep your guard up. Take heed lest you fall. Keep watch on yourself lest you too would be tempted. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Joseph Benson writes, The apostle alludes to the custom of travelers who, when too heavily laden with their baggage, would relieve one another by bearing the burdens of the weak or fatigued, and in that manner would show their good disposition toward each other. And I think in this we have a beautiful image of what the church is supposed to be. We are to help one another by sharing the load. As we live and face difficulties in this life, we are not left to face these things alone. The church is to be a family of faith. A family of faith that would help one another as families ought to do. We are to bear one another's burdens, to offer help and encouragement in times of affliction and trial. We are to be there for one another, strengthening, supporting, and upbuilding. If we have burdens, we are not to carry them alone. 
The church is to be a community of people who will have each other's backs. Our world today is starved for genuine community. It's interesting, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, what uh, some of the atheist groups will do. Uh, they will actually form these little communities that from the outside look like they function an awful lot like a church. Right? They'll get together and talk about their, <laughs> their mutual beliefs. They will be there and form community and uh, try to help each other out. Um, and, and we just see in this that God designed us to need people. And when the church is rejected or the church has failed, people will tend to look to create alternatives. Now, just on a personal, personal note, it has been an amazing blessing to be a part of this church community. To see what God has done in just three years, this coming fall, uh, has been phenomenal. From the support that we've received when welcoming new children into our home, or the way that people have sent encouragement to myself and my wife, uh, or the willingness to help out with various projects, or the times that brothers and sisters have come to share and to pray in hardships, I can truly say that I am so thankful for this church community. And my hope and my prayer is that we continue to grow in this regard. I, I think we are just getting started. And so a huge part of this for us to grow in this way is for everyone in the church to recognize that we all have a role to play. That is, we all have responsibilities to one another. Now, for us to truly get this, we may need to unlearn some of what we had previously thought the church was. Brothers and sisters, the church is not a business. Church members are not consumers. We are rather to view ourselves as participants. A consumer comes to receive something, to consume something. A participant comes to contribute something, to be part of something. The other members of the church should not just be random people that you happen to sit close to once a week, you know, like so many commuters on a bus, but rather, these are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. We form a spiritual family, bound together by the blood of Christ, filled by the same Spirit, saved by the same gospel, and joined to the same body of Christ. For us to obey what the Bible says about the church will therefore require us to be involved in one another's lives. Now, not in a nosy way, uh, but for us, uh, we need to understand we cannot weep with those who weep if we don't know that our brothers or sisters are weeping. We cannot rejoice with those who rejoice if we do not know that our brother or sister is rejoicing. We cannot help restore our brother or sister if we do not know that they have fallen. We cannot bear one another's burdens if we do not know about the burdens they carry. Brothers, sisters, we all have a role to play. So our goal has been to create a culture of discipleship within the church. And what we mean by that is that we want to form a community 
where every member understands that they have a responsibility to every other member. A responsibility to give a few examples, to bear one another's burdens. A responsibility to hold one another accountable and restore those who fall into sin. A responsibility to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. A responsibility to contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. A responsibility, simply put, to help others follow Christ. Or as we often call it, discipleship. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You might be thinking, Man, church is really failing in this regard. You know, I got all these burdens, and there's nobody helping me carry them. Or you might hear the description of what the church ought to be, and be thinking, man, that sounds good, but that has just not been my experience here. So I would simply ask you, have you reached out more than once? Have you sought out brothers and sisters, to pray with you? Have you told anybody about the burdens in your life? You know, we're, we're not wanting to create a nosy community where everybody is constantly digging uh, for something to gossip about. But have you been seeking people out to share those burdens? Or have you done your part in seeking to do these things for others? Have you invited people into your home? Have you asked them how their lives are going? Have you made hospitality your practice? Have you been diligent in seeking out opportunities to connect with your brothers and sisters in the church? You know, it's amazing how common it is uh, to hear of people who are very critical of a church uh, because it lacks community, when those very same people have been excluding themselves from the life of the church. I think back to this, I've seen this in, uh, when I was pastoring more than often. Uh, people would show up late for the service, and they are out the door as the closing song starts playing. They would never show up to any of the midweek things that were happening. Uh, they would never invite anybody into their home, and then they would go, man, this church just has no community life. As a general rule, what you get out of it depends tremendously on what you put into it. If you want to feel connected with your brothers and sisters in the church, then come to the things the church is doing. Come and be around your brothers and sisters. You know, come help set up chairs in the morning. Come for prayer and Sunday school. Stay and chat with people after the service. Come to midweek study or singing night. Uh, show hospitality, open your home, invite others in, and then seek to strengthen them in their faith. Do not speak of the church as them or they, but speak of the church as us and we. Include yourself. Take ownership. Take seriously your responsibility as a member. Don't wait for others to initiate, but reach out and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And what you'll find is that in that process, 
you will make connections. You will grow closer to your church family, and you will find yourself experiencing the kind of community that you have been longing for. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. All right, so what does he mean by that phrase there, uh, the law of Christ? Well, most likely he's just simply summarizing Christ's teaching. And the best summary we have of Christ's teaching is simply love. Now Jesus, of course, was not saying anything new when he was saying this. Uh, even the command to love our neighbor as ourselves was already there in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18. Jesus was not teaching anything different or contrary to the law of God, but what Jesus did was to rescue the law from the abuses that were common in his day, and to explain what God's law truly meant. And Jesus himself summarized the law in Matthew 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So if we're saying love is the summary of Jesus' teaching, well, love was also the summary of the law of God. And so the law of Christ is the law of God. For as we love God and neighbor, we are hitting the heart of what God's law was all about. Albert Barnes puts it, The law of Christ, this love for God and neighbor, would not allow us to reproach the offender or to taunt him or to rejoice in his fall. We should help him take up the load of infirmities and sustain him by our counsels, our exhortations, and our prayers. Close quote. We love one another by bearing one another's burdens, by aiding each other when we have fallen into sin, by helping one another back into fellowship with God and others. And as we've seen, this will involve loving rebuke. Biblically speaking, love involves caring for people's souls enough that we are willing to confront them in their sin. And this is true within the church when a brother or sister stumbles, and it's true outside the church as we seek to bring the gospel to a world that is lost in darkness. If someone is living a life that God says will lead to their destruction, it is not unloving for us to warn them about that. And the fact is, everyone who is outside of Christ is walking a path that will lead to destruction. So as we engage with the gospel, as we warn sinners of the judgment they will face if they remain at enmity with God, as we call them to repent of their sin and point them to Christ, the only hope of salvation, we must do so with the firm conviction that this is the most loving thing we could do. Regardless of what they may tell us, it is not hateful to use biblical language to describe sin. It is not hateful to call sinners to repentance. It is not hateful to call them to uh, obey the Lord Jesus Christ and turn in repentance and faith. The fact is, the path they are on leads to hell. And Christ is the only hope of salvation. 
And so let all the name-calling roll off of us like water off a duck's back. Christ endured far more to save his enemies. And so if we are counted worthy to suffer abuse for the sake of Christ and his gospel, and for the sake of the love we have for the lost, then let us gladly accept it. May we, like the apostles, when they were beaten and commanded not to speak in the name of Christ, may we, like them, rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5.41 Let's continue on. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't think too highly of yourself. If we are puffed up with pride, if we become conceited, we are likely to be harsh with others when they fall, and we are unlikely to help them bear their burdens. So humility is vital. As we've already read this morning, Philippians 2 verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The gospel message is one that should be deeply humbling. Now, as we went over last week, everything that we have is a gift from God. Our salvation was not our own doing. We are sinners and by nature were under God's wrath and could do nothing to save ourselves, but Christ has done for us what we could not do. Dying on the cross to take our place, to take all of our sin, shame, guilt, and punishment. Christ rose from the dead, intercedes for us before the Father, grants us his spirit to open our hearts and draw us to himself. Brothers and sisters, your salvation is not your own doing. And even your sanctification, your growth in holiness, the sins that you have overcome in your life, even these things did not happen merely by your own willpower. I love the dynamics at play in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Understanding the gospel rightly will not allow us to be arrogant toward those in sin, either within the church or without. And as we see others in sin, may we say with earnest compassion, but for the grace of God, there go I. Let us not look down on others, but let us gently restore our brothers who have fallen, and let us preach the gospel and love to those who are trapped in sin. And let us bear one another's burdens in humility. Verse 4. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, 
and not to his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Rather than comparing ourselves to others, let us test our own work. Let us examine ourselves in relation to God's standard, and then our reason to rejoice or our reason to glory or boast will be in ourselves and not because of the comparison we see with somebody else. So Paul here is calling for an accurate and sober self-assessment. Do not be puffed up with pride. Do not arrogantly compare yourselves to those that you would deem lesser than you. But test your own work. Examine your own life in comparison to God's standard. Then you may rejoice if you see good work there. You rejoice in what God has done in you, and not because you think yourself superior to someone else. Verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. And here we have another proverb or maxim uh, that Paul applies uh, to say that you will be held accountable for yourself. You will not be judged by how you compare to others, but each person will give account for how we handled what we were responsible for. And so Paul gives an important qualification to his earlier statement. While we are called to bear one another's burdens, as individuals, we are never given any excuses. When we stand before God, it will be to give an account of ourselves and no one else. Charles Ellicott writes, Here he is told that he must bear his own load, in the sense that he must answer directly to God for his own actions. His responsibility cannot be shifted onto others. It will make him know better that there are others worse than himself. Close quote. Now this is true of the good works that we do as Christians, and it is also true of those who do not know Christ. You will have to bear your own load. You will one day stand before God to give an account of yourself, and on that day, what will you say? That you were a good person? Perhaps that everyone around you affirmed your sin and said it was beautiful and a moral good? Will you tell God that you are better than many others that you know? Or would you dare to tell God that he is wrong to sit in judgment over you? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? None of our excuses will stand for us when we stand before God. As God has testified to us in his word, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And so nobody will get into heaven by being a quote-unquote good person. This is because none of us have been or could be good enough. The question is not, were you better than those around you? The question is simply this, are you a sinner? Or are you righteous? And the fact is, every single one of us is a sinner. All have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And so if God simply gave to every person what they truly deserved, they would receive God's judgment. But God, in his great mercy and grace, has granted us a substitute. Jesus Christ lived the life of obedience to God's law that we were required to live, and he died on the cross to take the penalty that we deserved. He rose from the dead, breaking the power of death, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he now offers a royal pardon to all of the rebels who will turn from their sin and throw themselves upon his mercy in true faith. Forgiveness of sin is offered through Christ, and this is our only plea. When we stand before God and the law is opened and our lives are compared to God's holy standard, it will be clear to us that we did not measure up. If we are then asked, how do we plead? The only answer to prevail will be to say, I am guilty, but Jesus Christ bore my guilt. Christ provided my righteousness, and Christ promised that all who come in repentance and faith would find forgiveness. And so I plead the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I plead his perfect righteousness, freely given and received by faith. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. This is the way. This is the path to peace with God. This is the path to everlasting life and salvation. Christ alone. Christ alone who bore the burdens of his people. Who gave his life to restore his people who were caught in transgression. Repent and believe, be saved and baptized into Christ, joined with him and raised to walk in newness of life. Amen.